Hey, this is Adam Spiegelman. Thank you so much for listening. This is a great episode. Coming up, very excited to have John Pearson. He is cinema royalty. Besides the work he's done now, but back in the 80s, he shepherded some of the greatest uh, independent films that come out of the time. His book, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, talks about movies he made with Spike Lee, Michael Moore, Richard Linkletter. Anyway, movies of his, like She's Gotta Have It and Roger Me, are being featured at the Cinema Family here in Los Angeles. They're doing a whole month of underground USA, indie cinema of the 80s, and they have some fantastic movies. So he came on this show to promote it, which was awesome. We talked about a lot of great stuff. Apologies to Michael Moore. You've always been nice to me, and uh, I worked for you, and you're awesome. But he talks about in his book, he's so honest about everything that I had to... I don't know, talk about money with him. Anyway, you'll hear that part. And uh, even though this is a huge interview for me, uh, I'm a huge fan of his, and I think you guys would get a lot out of this. I get Something happens in the middle of the interview that is so embarrassing that I I had to leave it in. So you'll hear that as well. So if you're in Los Angeles, come to CineFamily. They're doing this great festival until April 29th, which happens to be my birthday. You can start shopping now. Anywho. Friday at 7.30 on March 4th, John is presenting Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It. Then on Saturday, March 5th, oh my God, he is presenting Roger and Me at 7.30. I will try to be there. Some of the other movies are fantastic. On the 10th, it's Blood Simple. Uh, On the 11th of March is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. I don't watch scary movies mostly because of that film. If you're going to any of the festival events, please contact me. Let me know. At Proudly Resents is Twitter. Reach Adam at Mac.com. You join our Facebook page. Facebook, I guess, dot com slash Proudly Resents. Post which movie you're going to see. If you like this episode, go to iTunes if you want to leave a review. Thanks for listening. I really hope you like this episode. This means a lot. Enjoy. Well, John Pearson, you've worked in so many great films. This show is about cult films and our favorite cult films and you've definitely made a lot of them you don't have a producer title what is your title exactly if you're talking about then meaning the the decade more or less that i wrote about and was active from you know 85 to 95 i I guess i was an early example of uh, what's now a a very burgeoning field too numerous to count uh, called producer's representative but uh, I, I will say that there were instances where I was, because I was very leery of taking producer, executive producer credits that seemed unearned to me. I would maybe have a different attitude about that now since sure. uh, credit grabbing is uh, rampant. Um, but it's cool. And um, I, there, were, there were instances where I even uh, invested in movies uh, that I was representing. Um, she's got to have it being the first notable case um where i i'm my my involvement certainly wound up going far beyond being some kind of sales agent um but again i'm I by and large did not take producer credits in that time in that era um, what does a producer representative do that's different than a producer well i mean the producer should be getting the film you know literally if they're hands-on for real actor producer, they should be involved in every single aspect of the p- production, post production, and release of the movie. Um, when you're representing a film, you generally are coming in 
later um, when it's, you may know about it while it's being made, uh, but you'd be coming in later, probably as it's being finished, maybe during post, uh, as it's preparing to uh, go out into the world through a festival premiere or whatever the case might be. And um, you're, you're, depending on on how you approach it, you can either uh, have a more active role in trying to shape um, the film in those final stages um, while it can still be shaped to some degree. For example, on Clerks, uh, I feel very proud of having uh, very ardently um, suggested, argued, claimed, (laughs) whatever the right (laughs) verb is, um, that the that Kevin's movie shouldn't end, you know, kind of in a bloodbath where uh, Dante, uh, you know, our beloved lead character, uh, it you know, winds up getting shot at the end of the day and you know, lying in a pool of his own blood behind the counter at the quick stop. And uh, that was that was not a long or hard argument. I prevailed quite easily, but I'm glad I was a I was the person who uh, <laughs> jumped jumped on that issue and said, Hey, look, uh, this is a really funny comedy uh it's got an edge to it but it's, i really don't think you want to end it uh you know with your lead character dead and bleeding well how does that um, work for you because i mean that is such a huge part of another person's vision and your job and what you've done with so many people is help their vision where were you just to make that kind of suggestion and to stand by it what, what were you thinking oh i, I again i guess the phrase uh, no-brainer uh, applies on that <laughs> one um it's harder just to give you a contrast. I mean, with she's got to have it. Um, there were, there are things in that film that, uh, I was not alone. Several, several, or even many of us, um, wondered why Spike was so insistent on including certain things. Um, but he was, for example, uh, when, uh, the Tommy Hicks character, uh, Jamie, um, essentially comes back and, and, and rapes. I mean, certainly in modern day 2016 language, you would say that he rapes Nola Darling, um, you know, late in the movie. Um, we, we really, I'll just say, speak for myself. I really struggled with that scene and didn't think it did, uh, the overall, um, feature any, any, any real good. Um, and, and might've actually been, you know, sort of, damaging or could have been really damaging. Um, Spike was adamant and, you know, I respect that. Uh, He's got a very clear vision of things he wants to do. To this day, I think you see in his films, uh, you or I might look and go like, wow, he really, I mean, if you look at Chirac, it's like, oh, there's some things that maybe he could have cut out of there that would, that would make the film more uh, palatable for a, for a, for a bigger audience. But, you know, he's, He's very strong-willed, and and uh, he's got uh, this vision, and it was it was it was true back then. It's always been true. So what, hap- um, what it, happens? What happens? That I mean, here's a new filmmaker, well, that, and you're the experienced so I, I was, guy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying he's a new filmmaker. And you're the experienced guy. So how do you? But I was, but I wasn't then. <laughs> I was I was <laughs> brand new myself. So it was we were all learning together. And uh, I hope, uh, even when I knew more, I hope I never tried to impose on anybody. I hope I had a good way of, I think I've been really uh, effective at knowing how to talk to filmmakers, um, whether it's good news, bad news, or neutral news. And um, all I was going to say to finish that story about um, that scene with Spike and She's Gotta is that, you know, he, he now regrets that scene. If you read later interviews with him about the movie, he feels 
that that's something um, he would have cut. And so that's a, you know, that's an, you know, it's interesting that he has the, um, you know, the, the ability, uh, analyzing, uh, years later to, um, you know, see, see what it was that, uh, that, that some of us were not, uh, not thinking was a great idea then. And how did you, I, I read that you, you thought he was going to change cinema. What was it about that movie? And I had heard other people, uh, when they saw that movie, their lives were changed, even in the screenings. Um, what was it about the film that was so special? Well, that's a that's a great question. It's an easy question. It's actually my favorite question that you could possibly ask. Um, Starting out good. It's very, very, very representative of what I think was great about um, that 80s era of independent film. Um, it, it was a film made for an audience that was completely under or unrepresented on screen. Um, which is not to say that it just got a free ride because African-Americans had nothing, but it was a big, big, big deal. Um, not just for, you know, it's sort of an identity politics thing. It's like what you get, it's seeing yourself on screen. Um, but on top of that, um, one of the things that so helped, she's got to have it become a big success is that it was, uh, it has this, it's very funny and, and all that. Um, but it's also got this, uh, this sexuality that, that was, if, if you had some semblance of the occasional black character somewhere in cinema, even if it was being made by a, you know, African American writer, director like Spike, you still weren't seeing any sex. That's for sure. So, um, you know, it was, it, it, it sort of got to, uh, carve out, and and really uh, laid the groundwork for you know many 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 African American films that came after, um, you know there was that first really great wave that I, I think sort of uh, culminated somewhere around 1990 or so um, that was uh, that was really impressive and it was just a little explosion and the same thing would happen um, in other areas later on as well with gay films and lesbian films and Asian American films and um, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, success that you can uh, you, you can see the starting point in, in, in not necessarily crassly targeting an audience, but just naturally and organically, um, you know, making a film for an audience that wasn't, uh, that just didn't see itself, um, on the big screen. But to go back to Spike, um, he, he, um, that the movie in, in its rough form, uh, still, still was such a, it felt like it was going to be such a crowd pleaser um, it was fantastic. Another instance of, of what worked for a lot of independent films then is that he's in the film, um, you know, say he didn't mean that necessarily be playing Mars Blackman in that film, but he's great in the role. It's not people confuse the character with him. He's, of course, much more, a much more serious, no, not a B-boy at all. Um, well, he is from Brooklyn, but aside from that, not a B-boy at all. And so... Uh, you, you had a you had a case where this 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 this, this person who was a gifted uh, filmmaker uh, also was a front and center in his own movie and was very ready, willing, and able to be a spokesperson not just for that one film but for uh, sort of all of independent films, sort of all of African American films, sort of everything in the culture. And this is another thing that's like gold um, when you're trying to get um, get traction for something. Um, get people to pay attention. Um, so, 
you know, you know, all those factors just like were sort of overwhelming and clear, at least to me, overwhelmingly clear right away. Um, you know, this is a really good film and we've got a really good handle on how, um, we can, we can, uh, sell and promote this. It seems like a lot of the movies that you picked, um, the directors were uh, even bigger characters in the movie. Was that intentional? Is that something you looked for or you look for now? Well, it helps, but I think that it's really, I think that that's really, that narrative's really changed as the decades have, have rolled on. It, 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 this is hard to break down. Um, all those stories about prevailing over the odds and, you know, making movies for nothing and, and, um, et cetera, are tired. You know, they're old and tired and boring. And maybe, you know, like last year, if you shot a film with an iPhone, um, you know what I'm talking about, then right. maybe that's a story. But otherwise, nobody really gives a shit about those. Can I say that? Just gives a shit about those stories anymore. Please don't say And that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, they can say it on South Park. So oh, okay. um, I'm, I, I put it in uh, everyday conversation. There's no, there's no children in the room right now. No, no, no. Um, so... Uh, well, right now, so like, I don't know if you don't want to say the name of the movie, but the movie was shot in uh, on an iPhone, which for me, and I'm just such a fan of the films you did in, of that era because the story was always bigger than the film. So I rushed to see that movie, and the movie making was fine, and the acting and the writing was fine, but it, since it was shot on an iPhone, it became like, oh, the standards were lower for the writing, the acting, and you know, it made it feel like, oh, this is a great amateur film instead of a pretty good professional film. I like I like Tangerine. I just think that it's and it and it doesn't feel like a film shot with an iPhone. It feels no. like a digital film from the digital era, and that's again another thing that wasn't the case in the '80s. People actually had to have enough money to shoot film, mostly 16 millimeter film, but still, um, you know, it's a very different time, and it creates a whole different barrier to entry. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that people always spend a lot more time, you know, writing, uh, you know, a really meticulous three act script or something like that. Um, <laughs> but but the barrier to entry was definitely higher, which is why the number of films was way lower, um, which is why you automatically had an easier uh, starting point to stand out. Having said all that, I still think that those filmmakers who had, um, you know, kind of an iconic brand value of their own, like Spike or like Michael Moore or like Kevin Smith, even though uh, he's only in the non-speaking silent Bob role, um, you know, in, in, in his early movies, it's still, it, you still feel like you, you're seeing him on camera, but you're particularly had the sense of the, you know, the, of the person behind the film. And sure, I was very happy to be involved with all, all three of those, um, figures because, well, they're super talented, but that, that certainly makes life easier when you're, when you're, when you're trying to get audiences and critics and feature writers and everything else interested in your film, you know? Well, let's talk about is, my, it a, is it a pre, is it a prerequisite for you know for Spike or Mike or or Kevin um, to have those really good backstories and to be those really great promotional uh, figureheads? Um, I don't think there's anything detrimental about it. it it's it's been fascinating for me. Um, start, sorry, I keep spanning the entirety of uh, you know 35 years and like between the time I start and end the sentence, but. For me, it's been, you know, I live in Austin for a long time now, which is Richard Linklater's, uh, this, this is his hometown. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, a happy neighbor of his, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to call it, uh, you know, Rick's place. 
Um, but to see, to, you know, but here's a guy, well, he is in the very first scene of Slacker. Um, so you've got that. I mean, he kind of sets the tone for the whole film. But, um, you know, he is not like like a Spike, Mike, or Kevin. Um, but but the quality of, as a filmmaker, as a pure filmmaker and storyteller, um, you know, the quality of his work over a quarter of a century, uh, you know, culminating in, in, I mean, how often does this ever happen? Boyhood is like a culminating work that encapsulates everything that's great about whatever he had done since 1990, all in one film. I know it's over 12 years and all that, but all in one film that just came out in a 25th year of his career. And, and there's no, um, um, you know, there, 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 there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no sort of gimmick. Well, people said that shooting the film over 12 years was a gimmick, but with him as a filmmaker, he's not some sort of like, he's an icon for the way he approaches his work and the purity of what he does, but there's no, um, you know, there's no persona. Um, you know, it's like people always trying to figure, figure that dude out, you know, like who, well, who is he? Well, just, you, you can only know him by watching the films. But he's also somebody you can interview and you can send out to do, you know, 20 different interviews and people will want to listen to it and sell the film. Well, you could, there's no way, I don't think you're going to find an independent film, uh, you know, certainly in the, in the growth decade um, or, or, there, or for a while thereafter that, that didn't need, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of push. Um, you know, you can't, there were no, there were no Stanley Kubrick's, uh, you know, in low budget independent films. Oh, right. Do you think, uh, that hurt like, uh, the filmmakers of Laws of Gravity or Go Fish? Cause like Go Fish, I think is one of your best films and totally underrated. I don't know why. Do you think if she was more of a personality or if he was more of a personality, they would have had a different career? Uh, you'd be surprised. I can, I can, I still have, you know, fat paper files and, uh, you know, which I wonder who I should donate to. <laughs> but if you looked at the Go Fish, uh, publicity files, um, you'd be amazed at how far Rose, Trochet and Gwen Turner actually ran with that thing. They were, they were delightful as a duo promoting the film. They had been, you know, they had been a, like many people who had previously also been like actual life partners, um, they had this great edge between them where they were, they were kind of hilarious, but also really, um, um, edgy. And they, they did a great job of promoting the film, which, um, by the way, came out, Dolan released that. It was released the 4th of July weekend, um, in, um, 1994 and had a huge, and had a really huge opening weekend and grossed like two and a half million dollars, which in this day and age, any kind of film, Anytime an independent feature makes two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, in the, in the in the new millennium or whatever, we, whatever, the, the teens, whatever we're in now, I mean, people think that's you know, hey, that's pretty good. Hey, that's pretty good. It's it's racking up those BOD views. But you know, that was a two and a half million dollar grossing film, so it had, uh, and it was really kind of the first of its kind for the lesbian audience. You know, like I was talking about before. But the thing is. Um, the film is, is, I'm glad you like it, and I love it, um, but it's pretty rough. If you wanted to find a film that, like, um, you know, um, it, it, there's not much of a story. That's not that unusual. Um, <laughs> but there's also, you know, the, 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 it sort of has a lot of non-narrative techniques, and, and Rose has those, uh, those connecting 
sequences that are, uh, you know, her optical printing and odd, you know, images of spinning tops. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, a it, it, it's kind of a, it, it's not automatically and immediately uh, crowd pleasing film. Um, but it really spoke, it really, again, it spoke to its special interest audience for sure. But it's so funny, those transitions now remembering seeing the film, that's what I really liked about it. And you, the, the characters were compelling, you know, and real. even with, I never even thought there wasn't a plot until you mentioned it. And I've, you know, I've seen it a few times. <laughs> it didn't even hey, occur. A, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not smart, John. A, no, 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 stop. It's that, she was, Rose was an experimental filmmaker before she, you know, bridged into, into the narrative world. Um, Hey, you know, they, they also, this is, I'm not, I hope I'm not, uh, I, I'm not trying to tell tale out of school on those guys, but, um, that premiered at Sundance, um, same year as Clerks, same year as Hooperance. It was the, 1994 was the year of like almost all the films in competition had been made for very low budgets. Um, it was kind of the pinnacle of that moment. And, um, and, uh, Go Fish had, uh, the sound recording when that film was shot wasn't great. Um, and we show the library center, um, which I guess is a pretty, uh, you know, pretty, 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 a much better venue now than it was then. Um, just did not have good sound. So it was really kind of great. Cause I remember we premiered that film there and the sound was, it was hard to listen to. And we just blamed the theater. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. It's just, a, it's just, it's the new Sundance venue. It's just crap. <laughs> but, the, but honestly, the optical soundtrack on that film was not good. See, so, um, there's a weird personal story that after I saw the movie, I was in living in New York and I was taking an improv class and the woman who played the slutty woman was in my class and I was so like starstruck and it was so amazing. And then she winds up hitting on me and my girlfriend and I thought, oh, this is perfect. It was more like a moment like, wow, I get to live the film out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was always interesting, you know, a lot of those early indie films uh, had you know, a trademark was that you'd often have people who were just barely actors or not actors playing characters that were, you know, quite related to their real life selves. Um, and so when you, when you actually got to meet them, like if you met, like take Strangers in Paradise, if you meet John Lurie or Esther Blint or Richard Edson, it was just, it was just really hilarious to, to see, you know, how they, what relationship they bore to those, those three characters they play in the film. Obviously Jim Jarmish had thought about that and that's why he cast them. And that's why he created the characters the way he did. Um, so they're not identical, but they're, it's just, it's just so related. Um, I remember, uh, uh, John Canada Terrell plays the, uh, the sort of obnoxious model weightlifter guy and she's got to have it. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, just vain and full of himself and egomaniacal and, uh, it was funny. People would go like, "Oh, is he really like that?" And I'm like, "No, he's no." But sometimes he can be a little, almost worse. <laughs> but he's a good guy. I should, I should. But you know, it just that was a really, um, you know, fascinating part of that. They just felt like they were people that you knew. Um, and that's uh, in, in many instances to get started. What else are those directors? Who are they going to have access to? Um, you know, it's independent film has become so much more cast driven name cast driven um you kind of wonder if we've lost uh this this in addition to how we discover new directors 
it's also interesting to figure out how we discover um, new and offbeat um, actors as well. And, um, you know, whenever somebody like Steve Buscemi, for example, is in, uh, the first film I actually sold, uh, which I didn't have an investment in, Parting Lances, I mean, that's his first significant movie role, and who knew that uh, hundreds of films and television later that he would be Steve Buscemi, you know, he was just a, he was just another guy, um, you know, sort of doing a little theater, sort of doing a little um, stand-up with uh, Mark Boone Jr. In, in downtown New York, and still a fireman. Um, you know, it's just, that's, that's one of the things that was so great about this world. Were you in, involved in the casting of that film, or you came right at the end? No, I came later. Uh, one of the producers that I had gone to MYU film school with, and he he, he asked me to uh, step in and help get it sold. And I'm like, why me? Because at that point, I think I programmed uh, Bleecker Street Cinema, and I had, you know, I'd done some distribution, exhibition, knew the distributors, and uh, had a sense of how publicity worked. A um, little bit of everything. Uh, so is Jack that how you fell, in, you fell into his job? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, he asked me, right, he asked me, this guy, Arthur Silverman, goes like, hey, you can help us with this. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, you know, you know everybody, and you know how this shit, you know, you know how it gets done. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And 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 that was that was the start. Where, where do you start? I mean, I, I, I just think this is an interesting question, because I remember the first time I had to produce something, I just called people from, uh, I had a book something, I just called people from my hometown. And uh, and I booked them, and everyone thought I was a genius. So, what did you do to start promoting uh, Parting Glances when you didn't have any idea what you were doing? <laughs> I suppose. Well, again, some, some the, idea. The, I might. I, I had a you know, I had a sense of how um, I knew the players. I guess is the is the right answer. So I was connect, I didn't realize that I was connected, but it was a much more low key world then. So uh, I was connected in New York. Uh, it's it's it's. It's cool to see in the Cine family in the 80s series, it's cool to see L.A. be in the West Coast be pretty well represented. But I would say at that time, New York was really ground zero. And um, I was there, and downtown New York was like the ground zero of ground zero. And uh, many of the distributors at that point were, uh, were based there, um, you know, most of them, I think. So, you know, and I came into contact with them through, you know, booking, you know, booking a bleak or whatever. So that's basically, I just, what I knew, I, what I knew I knew was the people. Um, what I didn't know was like, what should the deal be like? How much should we ask for? Um, how much should we, do we, are we ever in a position to demand? Uh, how, where should we premiere? And again, that was an interesting case because the independent feature film market, um, which was an offshoot every fall, the uh, independent feature project, was a happening, happening thing. Um, this was 85. And so um, we're, like, uh, we're like, we'll premiere there. Um, before, you know, Sundance, even then, or January of 86, Sundance has some very good films. If you look back at that lineup, but they weren't, it wasn't like a big deal. Um, and in fact, many of them that played out there had already opened um, in New York, LA. They were playing films that hadn't opened Utah yet. <laughs> so, um, so you needed other you needed other um, uh, you know platforms to launch from, and uh, independent feature film market uh, worked great um, for for parting glances. Uh, I think the you know what else was there that year the um, the Jaime Escalante uh, calculus teacher movie. It changed its title. 
Stand and Deliver is what it was released as. Uh-huh. Um, and I think they even added that Adam Ant song. Uh, <laughs> when Warner's bought it. <laughs> I don't know what it was originally called. I can't remember anymore. But that was in the in the IFFM, and um, well, that was a big film, right? I mean, that was a studio. It was film. a big, yeah. It was really, it was really an unusual, um, you know. It was, in fact, in fact, I think what happened that year is I think Warner's bought it after the market, and then they pulled it. It was supposed to be in Sundance, and I think they pulled it. That's 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 where how <laughs> how relatively unimportant Sundance was, even in 1986. But at any, at any rate, it was a good launch point for um, for Parting Lances and a company that was uh, just coming on very strong then called Cinecom uh, made the uh, made the best offer on the film. And I know I remember trying to twist. We didn't really have other big competing offers, but I remember trying to twist their arm because again, if you feel comfortable negotiating, I know a lot of people can't even bear to buy a car. But if you feel comfortable negotiating at a car dealership, you, you, you can probably you'll probably be okay selling a movie. What is your key to negotiating? I am a guy. I drove. I've not bought a car in years, and I avoid it like the plague. I'm the guy. So, but what what tips do you have for negotiating? I'm the worst. Um, the same thing. That I think that that's also been said for any job that you, even if you really want it, the attitude that you should have uh, when you get it or take it um, is that you 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 would always be willing to walk out the door. Anytime you're selling a film. Um, you just, I think you always need to be willing to, uh, you know, to, to walk out if you don't like the offer. Um, and then you need some nerve. Uh, you need some nerve if you, if you, if you're in a competitive situation, um, you know, you're the seller, not the buyer. So that's, that, that's what makes it different for me and the, you know, the guy buying the car. But um, if you're in a competitive situation um, and it's truly, truly competitive, like say Roger and me was, um, then 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 you just need to take a breath, calm down, and not go too fast. I mean, we 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 probably uh, it was probably over a span of more than two months that that went from a fifty thousand dollar offer from Little Roxy releasing a Telluride to a three million dollar sale of Warner Brothers. Um, you know, after Telluride, Toronto, the New York Film Festival, et cetera. Um, well, so how do you but it, do but, that? But you got to watch it. But when, like, but with Party Glances, it was like one of these things where um, it, we didn't really have another, uh, there was no external that was going to really change uh, the value of the film. And so um, I remember we just thought, well, we we need to keep, however we can create pressure here or a sense of a ticking clock, we need to do it right now. And um, I think we got Cinecom up a little bit. It was a $300,000 film, which was typical of what things shot on film cost at that time, I think, in the mid-'80s. And, um, and for domestic, I remember we got them to pay two, which seemed fair. You know, a lot of times you were using the, you were using the budget of your film as some kind of measuring stick for what you wanted to, you know, recoup. Um, so that's, that's how that went down. How did you build a ticking time clock? Oh, we probably, that was one where we probably lied. <laughs> Said other people are interested or? <laughs> yeah, we probably feigned more other interest than there really was. Well, then how do you take Michael I think Moore's? I, I, yeah, I think that, I think that we might've said, I think we might, I believe we told Cinecom 
God, we could go on for 18 hours this way. So please, please rein me in. And, and uh, you know, uh, there's a story behind every one of these films, but there, I don't know who's really, I'm glad you're interested. I don't know how many people would be, but I think we said, Cinecom, here's your, here's your, here's your magic moment. You, we will deal with you and you only. You can make a preemptive offer. We won't entertain any others. And I think what we then did was entertain others, but they weren't very good. Uh-huh. Um, I think I think that's how that went. Then how do you take Michael Moore's film? And I think I told you in my email I worked for Michael, uh, so I can call him Michael. I think. Um, how did you take his film from fifty thousand to three million? Well, that's where externals. Um, it, 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 knowing that it was going from Telluride to Toronto to the New York Film Festival, there were events um, every couple of weeks, which. Um, Theoretically, it, it could grow and grow and grow into this phenomenon, um, which it did. Um, you know, there was another screening with people going nuts, or there was, a, you know, a big feature breaks in the New York Times, or, you know, review, you know, Roger Ebert's review, uh, which was one of the first, if not the first, rolls in. Um, you know, step by step by step, something good happened virtually every day which seemed to enhance its value. And then in the end, um, you know, Michael, of course, had his own internal sense of how to play this out and uh, get more. Um, so I don't take all the credit for that. Uh, but in the end, I do, I do feel like uh, the, the last key deal decision, um, which I do think was pretty pretty ingenious, uh, was that we had all these, um, all the indies, every single independent, well-financed independent company had a major offer on the table for that film of a million dollars or more. And, um, Miramax, which was in their, you know, beginning of their heyday, um, because it was the that was the Sex Lives of Videotape year 1989, so they were they were just uh, it was it was just about to become uh, you know Miramax era. Um, they they offered a million and a half, um, and others probably would have matched that, but they were clearly uh, you know getting on top of their game and seemed like you know they were so passionate about it and just seemed like the right place. But at that point, the majors, um, Universal, Disney, and Warner's had also finally sort of weighed in, um, expressing interest and, and wanting us to, uh, come out to LA and do the rounds and, uh, get them in the mix as well. And so we, what we did was we negotiated really all the deal points with Miramax for the million and a half uh, dollar deal and said, if we don't, this is it, this is the deal, but you're going to give us a week. We're going to go meet with the studios because we'd kick ourselves if we didn't. We will sign this deal um, when we come back for a million and a half unless one of those studios pays double. And that's what happened. And we said, and I remember telling Harvey, this was, this was classic, um, a Michael Moore, John Pearson moment for, the, for all time. I remember telling Harvey, we'll give you, was it half an hour? Was it an hour? I don't, I, I'm going to say half an hour. We'll give you half an hour 
to talk us out of it. We'll come back. Even if we got the double, double the offer, we'll come back and give you half an hour to talk us out of it because, oh, they're big bad studio, you know, all those things. Or you're betraying your, you know, you're completely betraying, you know, independence by, you know, going with, a, you know, major multinational corporation like Time Warner or whatever. Because Time, Time Warner just merged with Time. It was like they were even bigger than ever. So, um, so we go, we get the three million offer from them. We come back uh, to Cable Harvey's half hour, and it was great. He just looked at us and he goes, "Oh, I know, I'm not going to be able to talk you out of this. Go in peace." It was, it was awesome. How crazy is that? Because his reputation. So he wasn't angry at you. Didn't yell at you. You can still talk to him if you see him in the oh, street. Oh, so, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, again, I'm a, I'm a been an advocate. You know. His behavior sometimes I know for I hear stories, but I'm I'm his I'm his lifelong advocate for what he's what he's done for film. Why do you think like you they have a great eye? Where do you think that comes from? It's sort of what we were talking about before. They have the perfect combination of seeing they can see a film they can see the quality in a film, but they never lose sight of how they're going to be able to um to make that film work in uh, in a marketplace. It's a complicated combination of things to balance. I just want to talk about YouTube now. We talked a little bit about how film made you, gave you the point of entry. So where do you think YouTube, does it help the independent world? Does it hurt it? Is it a, what's the world like now because of it? Oh, the world is uh, unrecognizable. Um, anybody can, you know, the cost of making um, a film, a feature, or something shorter, whatever it is, a web series, I don't, whatever, whatever it is that you creatively need to do to express yourself is, uh, virtually nothing. Um, so anybody can, um, thousands do, tens of thousands do. And then there, obviously there are also platforms where you can, uh, garner some form of eyeballs and recognition. Um, but, you know, my, 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 my issue with that, I've kind of stepped away from all this. And the, and the reason why is that, um, I, I really, um, have, it's probably very old fashioned, um, maybe even dinosaur like old fashioned at this point, but I really, really, really have always sort of been a feature film guy. Um, I, I look, the modern wave of golden age television, great, great, great. You know, so many great episodic series, you know, I'm, that's a different category, but I, I really like feature film. And I really, having said that, what I really liked about the way, um, independent filmmakers breaking through or breaking out worked is that there was a, um, kind of a sort of a development program where you got to work your way and evolve through more modestly budgeted features um, as you decided what it was you wanted to make, how it was you wanted to make it, and where it was you were you were heading in your career. And so, so many of those uh, filmmakers in the, who got their start in the '80s, um, Jim Jarmusch, the Cohn brothers, um, Spike. Um, Gus Van Sant, um, so, so many of them were put in a position and later on with Kevin Smith, Hey, Michael Moore too. Cause, uh, they were put in a position where they could make a second feature after they'd had a big success first time out of the box. However, they'd managed to scrimp and save and make that first film. They got a chance 
um, to step up and make, you know, maybe a, you know, a five or $6 million feature. Um, you know, not, not Colin Trevorrow going to Jurassic world, you know, it's just like, it's sort of like much more, um, logical and sane and rational, um, you know, to sort of like have this, have this, have this next step up. And that, you know, and, and, and so I love the idea of careers developing that way. And when they could go on, um, you know, Linklater could make dazed and confused and, and Spike could make school days and, um, and do the right thing. And, um, and the Coens could do raising Arizona and, um, and Kevin could do mall rats. Okay. And sometimes they didn't work. And Michael could do Canadian bacon. Sometimes things don't always work out. Um, but it's still like such a great part of the learning curve. And then you, then you, then your career just continues to build off of that. And I, I think in a much more rational way than the way the world is set up now. And so what I don't see is like what happens, somebody who's discovered, um, you know, in YouTube or any other available format. And I just don't know what it is that they're going to be given the opportunity, you know, somebody backing them to do. Um, and so I, I just have a, I'm, I just have a hard time uh, figuring out how that works structurally. That's all. Nothing against it. I love to talk about second films. I think that's fascinating. What do you have to do for your second film? Do you give them advice? Like, all right, now you have this platform. Like you said, you, you put everything on the table in this first film. What's your advice to them for their second film? Again, that would be sort of a retrospective comment because I don't think it applies anymore. What, so what is but the if, you, if, if you're letting me travel back, if you're indulging me and letting me travel back in time and show my age. Go ahead, show it. Um, as I as I sit on the verge of retirement, <laughs> you look, look for me back in Fiji. Um, anyway, I think that um, some of the biggest jumps, uh, those still with more modest budgets, are just mind-boggling. For to go from slacker to, to dazed and confused uh, for Linklater is just like who would have ever really expected that? A non again a, a bare, experimental semi-non-narrative film, and then like a teen. You know, it's not your normal teen comedy, but it's a high school movie that's, you know, you know, the one thing it shares with Slacker is it's in a 24-hour time span, so there's that there's that commonality. But otherwise, it's just like you never would have thought you'd get that from him. You never would have thought that Brian Singer would go from Public Access, which shared the prize in Sundance one year, to, um, to The Usual Suspects. That's another one that's just like, um, just, a, just a, an astonishing leap. Um, you know, spike, spike to school days. This is like that's something that, that was called a homecoming, and that was a script that he had before he made She's Got to Have It. That just he knew it was larger scale. So that's something that he wanted to do before he, you know, made a uh, you know made something that was affordable and twelve day shoot and manageable and everything. You know, you know, several characters basically in a couple of rooms. Um, so that's why so he pulled that out of the hopper. And, um, you know, and again, learning experience is like in his case, he's just always thinking all these guys, is, I think it's true for, they're always just sort of thinking ahead. They're always thinking about what's next. Um, and so, you know, it's like, he doesn't get knocked off his feet when school days isn't very successful. He's, he's, he's good to go with do the right thing, which is a, you know, to this day, it's just an amazing achievement. Um, Kevin on Mallrats, uh, it's funny because he had the same uh, producers and backers that uh, that Linklater did on Dazed and Confused. Um, 
and and uh, it just it just sort of uh, you know I guess people say it's a cult. Well, Kevin would be the first I'd say to point out, yeah, it became a cult hit now, um, but it, you know it's kind of lambasted in its time. So then and again in terms of the overall trajectory, he had to figure out how to take a step back, and uh, you know he got he got um, savaged for having abandoned his uh, his indie roots, even though Mallrats is clearly you know very related to Clerks, but he took a step back his lower budget um, from the heart step back, um, you know, when he made Chasing Amy, um, which I am proud to say I executive produced. So um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, I think, I think anybody who, who has a sustained career to this day uh, from that era, I think they just always had a, a longer, I think they always had a longer, a longer view. Mm-hmm. Which, which is not to say that every film on its own doesn't matter, but every film is also part of, of learning, getting the experience um, to get better and keep moving. It's hard, though, when you do it so publicly. Because, you, you, like you said, you're learning, but you're learning in front of a bigger audience than you did even in your first film. Again, the good news is that it's a bizarre um, factoid, but almost every one of these films I just mentioned the second and third features, almost every one of them was, as I mentioned a moment ago, was in the sort of like the $6 million budget range. So um, you're not, nobody's, nobody's taking a bath, even when something flops. And if the critics are out to gun you down, um, well, you know, you need, you need to develop thicker skin anyway, just because everybody loves you at first. You right. know, it's just like, it's America, get used to it. Right. They'll change. If you like them, they like you now. That just wait. Hey, it's, that's what we—that's what we love here. Build them up, tear them down, let them then come back. Right, right. It's a true comeback story. Uh, your book, Spike, Mike, Slacker, and Dykes. Like I said, Slackers and Dykes. Uh, I read it a million times when it came out. It's great. You're very honest. Did you get any pushback from people? Like even Michael Moore, the stuff about Michael Moore and uh, dealing with him and his uh, wife at the time. Well, look, you have your, you have your, I want to hear your stories about Michael Moore. (laughs) He's a a handful and, uh, yes, he's, yes, he's got his own take on everything. And, and, uh, I remember giving him the manuscript of that chapter and there were things he was fine about and things he wasn't. I mean, we've had our ups and downs, uh, over the years and, um, I, I stand by that chapter about Roger and me. I stand by every single word. So why did you? I just I loved it. This the frustration you felt uh, trying to get Michael on board for what you were doing. You ended up giving up. Am I right? You gave up your percentage of the film. I took half of what was a what was a you know I guess I I was. You know, you go, let's go all the way back to you asking about repping films. I mean, people now I think just like any agent would uh, rarely not take ten percent. Um, and even back then there was kind of this whole thing of like, yeah, you get 10%. I'm like, nah, I don't, that doesn't seem right. I'll take five. And I wasn't sort of to undercut anybody. Not many other people were doing this. I just, this felt right. And I always never try to worry. I try never to worry about money. Um, so, but on Roger and me, uh, I, uh, once the 3 million deal was in, I was like, I don't, I'm with you. I'm politically so, so aligned with you, Michael. Let's just like, I don't even need 5%. Like, I don't want my judgment on who we should sell this film to to be affected by what I'm going to make on it. So just let's just cut that in half, and then find some good uh, 
find some good cause to, you know, put that money, put my other half towards. And, um, it was, I was enthusiastic. Um, it was stupid actually. I, that's, that's, that's in a, in a hard number, that's $75,000. If he wants to write me a check today, I'd take it. I'd cash it. Well, it's fine. I mean, yeah. Michael's always been very nice to me. So, but it was, I don't want to slam him, but the hypocrisy of that, you know, growing up and watching that movie and then working for him and reading that in your book and then going to his $3 million apartment in Upper West Side for a screening, I felt like, oh, well, this is where all the, uh, you know, the, the liberal money goes. Y- you know, it's all about money at the end. It doesn't... I'm minding, I'm minding my P's and Q's. I was wondering, like, do we what, for, one, for one thing, let's hope, I mean, look, he's still recovering from his... Uh, the severe bout of pneumonia and everything. So uh, if you're out there, Michael Moore, love your full recovery, Godspeed. Um, I feel shitty but, not yeah, the, the, the money issue, the money issue is, uh, is, you know, what's, I will say this. Um, sometimes you know, Michael's on a, been on a constant lifelong campaign um, to try to make America better. Right. Um, and, and he believes it. Maybe that's, Maybe that's been helpful, or maybe that's been uh, hopeless and pointless, or maybe it's been somewhere in between. Uh, but there is one one thing about which there's no doubt: um, he has uh, personally profited from uh, his mission. <laughs> right, right. He wasn't taking half the money, and I feel shitty saying he's always been nothing but nice to me. But I just felt like. Oh, he's there to make, and after, because I met him after reading your book, and I was like, oh, he's here to make the money. He's not worried about, you know, he's going to take the money. He's going to do the work, but he's going to take the money. And I thought it was an interesting lesson. Hey, look, look, the Blair Witch guys did, um, you know, I was in first on that, and they did a television show on IFC called Split Screen, which was the first place any of that backstory was planted or uh, where the first footage from the film was seen. And I and I effectively, you know, gave them twenty thousand um, um, dollars towards uh, using their material on my TV show. And they're like, "You want you want a percentage of the film, or you want it on the film?" And I'm like, uh, so "Actually, just to be honest about this, I, I I love the whole concept behind Blair Witch. I just loved it. I thought this is just so this is this is really going to catch people's attention." But I, I, I truly didn't have any clue uh, that that film could, you know, open gross $130 million. Um, so, so it's not like I knew I was passing on a windfall. I just said, I like you guys. Uh, you know, I'm happy to pay you for what you've done, how, how I've used your preliminary pre-film material. You know, uh, just don't worry about it. Just, you know, again, go in peace and uh, hope it turns out well. And, you know, there's, there's where $75,000 is only, is only a, a small percentage of what my Blair Witch uh, profits could have been. So. Wow, you know what? After hearing that story, I'm on Mike's side. I'm on Michael's side. <laughs> You're terrible with money. Uh, this is terrible. Uh, there's actually, um, just to plug this show, we interview one of the actors from Blair Witch, uh, Mike Williams earlier he's a friend of mine from college and same thing he thought the movie was going to go nowhere we talk about that how i was like wouldn't it be great if this movie was huge and he's like no one's going to see this movie of all your films that you've been associated with i think that's got to be the biggest right um yes 
by a landslide. Yeah, what, what was it? Was it the the uh, internet? That had to be the greatest. You know, we're talking about backstories helping to launch independent films, you know, right, right. instead of, you know, when you don't have 30, 40, 50, 80 million dollars to spend on TV ads or something. But yeah, that had to be the best backstory ever. Hey, when we did that on the show, I, again, I did feel like I got my money's worth because uh, it was just such a big deal for the show and people were uh, emailing and writing actual like uh, snail mail letters at that point, you know, just for, for months, if not years. Well, the show went around the world, so we'd get into a new territory like Namibia and, you know, we'd start getting emails like, is this really true? Um, and <laughs> and it, 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 was just like, it was just such a vivid illustration of uh, the degree to which that, that, that sort of that X-Files idea, like we want to believe, you know, and, and people really, 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 really wanted to believe that story on some level. And yes, the internet uh, was great at helping to spread it. I mean, um, I fell for it just like, you know, they brought me a, you know, an investor reel. You know, where they went through the story of the Blair Witch and these three missing filmmakers who they, were different actors. That, so they weren't in it, but they were, they were still photographs. There were different actors. It was supposedly um, Blair County. Before it was Burkittsville, it was Blair County. And because um, Eduardo Sanchez is actually from Maryland, as am I. And, uh, and, they, and I, was so, I so fell for it myself. I'm like, oh my God, I'm from Maryland. I can't believe I've never heard about this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, and then it's like, you know, there's there's not that many counties in Maryland. You learn them in school, whatever, seventh grade or whatever. Uh, I don't remember exactly. And and I'm like, and then like Dan um, Dan Meyer goes, John, John, it's not true. <laughs> and I'm like hitting myself in the head, going like, oh, oh, right, there's no Blair County in Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what you're coming to LA for um, uh, this week. The, is the 80s Independent Film Festival, or if, what's the best way to describe it? So I don't mess it up. Oh, what do they call it? They call I think they have. I call it in the 80s just to abbreviate it, but it's actually I think they have the word underground in the title there somewhere. So. Um, oh, that makes it cooler. All of a sudden, now it's much cooler. Now the word underground is in there. I mean. Yeah, well, I feel I feel like uh, it's it's really interesting because the '80s is when it came above ground. Um, <laughs> I think the underground to me is like John Waters in the '70s. That's mm-hmm. like underground, right? Um, or a liquid sky. Whoa, hold on. Well, there was, hey, look, that kept up. Hold that 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 that, hold that, on, that weird, hold on, funky under you know under underbelly of uh, you know independent film never went away. Um, hold on. Let me call you back up. Hello. Hey, John, it's Adam. Hey, there you are. Are you off the, uh, uh, you know, watch list, the no-fly list? <laughs> All right, I'm so embarrassed. This is an interview I've been looking forward to for a long time. I was even one day driving to work, and I thought, oh, I'd love to interview John Pearson from that book. And then the, the email came about interviewing you. It was really cosmic. This is the biggest interview for me. I got internet scam, John. <laughs> It was spam that popped up during our interview, blaring noise, telling me that, like the Russians, literally the Russians were coming. And I went through this oh. whole process with these people, where they, they were like, "Well, you can bring all your computers to the app store for a week, for ten a thousand dollars, or we can do it online for you for three hundred dollars in one day." And uh, <laughs> I was scammed. I, I didn't even know. I'm too smart for that. I thought. God. But uh, at the end, I was like, oh, f- I just told him to fuck off and uh, hung up the phone. 
What a world we live in. Oh, gosh. It was so crazy. So that was my embarrassing moment. So, But we were about to talk about what's going on in the Cine family. Yeah, I'm very pleased that they uh, included me in this, but I just wanted to take a moment and take a look at and praise uh, how they programmed this thing, if I might. They have some great movies. Yeah, what I, what I love about it is there's no way that you could show um, everything. But I think that uh, within this group of films, they've just managed to get such diversity by going both with better-known titles, and again, the two nights I'm going to be there, which she's going to have it, and Roger and me, are certainly in the, uh, the better-known, uh, more obvious selections. And then there's much deeper cuts, to use that good old uh, music uh, terminology, that are real discoveries, unknown nuggets, fan films. And that's in particular, I think a lot of the titles that, um, since there's a whole question of where the center was, was it New York or L.A.? Well, there's no doubt in the 80s the center for independent film was was New York, and in fact, below 14th Street in New York. Um, and, and L.A. is a little more of a, of a sort of a well-kept secret. I mean, I, I think everybody had a sense of... Um, um, well, in particular, I think people had a sense of maybe who Charles Burnett was, although it took until a little later on. I'm not sure they knew it right away. But the fact that, that Burnett, um, with a lesser-known film, with My Brother's Wedding, which is great, and Julie Dash and Billy Woodbury, you know, that whole UCLA gang, um, the fact that they're all represented in the series, and early Allison Anders as well with Border Radio, a, a film that's, that's not that well-known. I think that's just that's a really nice sign about how... Um, how they really, you know, made a made a nice reach to go deeper in the series, and um, and I and I really I really feel um, um, I'm happy to be a part of uh, of a lineup that can that can um, you know dig deeper and 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 give films like that uh, some modern day exposure. Which is not to say, hey, look, I taught in film school um, here at UT for um, you know almost a decade, and uh, you know from 2004 to 2012, and already, uh, you know, I, you found a lot of people, even in a pretty major uh, film program there, who had not seen, um, you know, Stranger Than Paradise or uh, or She's Got to Have It. So even when I say there's some more obvious selections, um, it's not as if they're <laughs> it's not as if they're really always in the cultural mix. I know what mix they are in, though. I think those films were really really influential in in getting other filmmakers inspiring other filmmakers and showing them the way forward um and that's that's another thing that's really interesting about digging back into the into the into the indie 80s um you you see how almost each of these films seemingly unleashed um a lot of other uh work um in their in their aftermath and i think that's uh, i think that's really important where people take their inspiration from is there a movie that you recommend that people see that besides your own? Oh, I, for because I think it's so vastly improved on the big screen. Um, anybody that hasn't seen, and I guess it's a well-known film, but again, sometimes gets forgotten. Anybody who hasn't seen Stranger Than Paradise or who hasn't had the pleasure of seeing it on the big screen, that's how that film works best. Um, you know, it goes to black, uh, you know, in between the scenes, and it has this real deadpan humor, and so visually it just uh tom Dicillo shot that visually it just looks way better that way but also when you're in an audience of people 
laughing and responding to the character interplay, um, that's a, that's, that's a huge, uh, I think that's a huge plus as well. Um, but of the lesser known stuff, again, I, I, I was just so happy to see the Billy Woodbury film in there. Um, cause it's uh, bless their little hearts because it's, again, it's a film that people really, uh, really hardly know at all. And, um, What's it called? and, uh, it, it's called bless their little hearts. Oh, and I, I, I nice. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Bless, bless, bless your heart, Billy Woodbury, for bless their full hearts. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I got to say my favorite is Chan is Missing. Well, again, it's a, that's, a, that's a film that just came out of nowhere. And it, it, it mostly, you know, I think it was better known in New York and San Francisco where, you know, Wayne, uh, Wayne Lang's from than anywhere else. In New York, it played for, I mean, New Yorker films had it and it played at the, at the cinema studio, which was Dan Talbot's uh, theater. And it played for a really, really, really long time. So you couldn't have been in New York then and not known about it. But that's that's another one that I think uh, really, uh, you know, key, sort of stuck with people. And uh, it launched his career as well. So it's another, you know, it's, part, it's good in an audience, again, because it's weird. You know, when you see that film maybe sitting on your own, you're never quite sure how to take it. It's a little, is it funny? It's a little enigmatic. It's open-ended. And and so, again, the, I think being in a, in a group of people... Um, might help you um, help you uh, respond to the film more directly. Yeah, if you like nervous laughter, you should go to uh, Stranger in Paradise <laughs> and that film. But that's really that's really a good comparison. Actually, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's such a beautiful movie. Both both those movies are beautiful films. I mean, just sitting there, it's such a great experience. Uh, and so that it's, you, it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one last thing. It's also great. Um, I think most of the documentaries they picked are 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 the key. They're sort of the key films. And again, there were so you know few documentaries in the '80s. And let me let's say one quick word about why that's true. When you're shooting film, if you're making a, a narrative film, um, you know you can if you if you really got a tight shooting schedule and you've written a tight script and and it's all physically manageable, um, you 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 might be able to make a film with a, a very low uh, shooting ratio, maybe even three to one, um, in some of these cases, but with documentaries, you know, where you don't have a written story, I mean, now they give prizes for documentary screenwriting, but obviously that's more after the fact than as you're shooting the film, uh, you just don't know what you're going to need to shoot and to have that raw material to edit. And so no documentary, um, you know, can have that lowest shooting ratio. Consequently, they always cost more, um, in a world where everything had to be shot on film. Um, and, and so that was a real, a real, it prevented so many people from being able to just say, oh, I'm going to make a documentary. Well, you could say it, but it, to actually do it was almost impossible. And so it's really, um, it's really interesting how few they were, but they've got, you know, they've got some real key ones uh, here in the series. And one, uh, you know, I don't think that Roger and me, for example, could exist um, without Sherman's March, uh, the Ross McElwee film, because that's really the first film I think that audiences saw. I'm not saying it's the first it was ever made, but I think it's the first film that audiences saw theatrically um, that put the filmmaker on camera. And I'm not sure that Michael Moore would have would have um, you know been ready, uh, willing and able to uh, go on camera the way he did if if like nobody else had done it before. But I feel that Ross very different kind of film, of course, but I feel that Ross had sort of like been the pioneer and, and laid the groundwork for that. So that's another, that's another film that's, um, that's well worth checking out and kind of historically important. And that whole thing, Sherman's March and then Thin Blue Line and then Roger and Me 
all three of those documentaries, I think 87, 88, 89, are, um, they transformed uh, the documentary form. I think if you really take the three of them together, and it's partly by breaking the rules in ways that offended, you know, the old school. Um, you know, like with, with with Sherman's March, it's a first-person documentary, so I don't think people were going, what's wrong with that guy? But with Thin Blue Line, it's like Errol did recreations. And, you know, it's like, you know, even even the tabloid television shows weren't really even on then doing that. So it was really, what is he doing? Um, staging, you know, restaging or recreating this material. And, um, you know, kind of got, I, I think in some award situations, certainly with the Oscar committee, then I think that worked against him. Um, and then, of course, all the, all the different rules that, uh, that Michael Moore broke and Roger. I mean, I think that those three films taken as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a trilogy are, are their influences for everything that's come after is, is almost incalculable. Yeah. And out of the three, I, I know you can't say which is your favorite, but you, you have to see thin blue line. I mean, if you haven't seen that movie, it's such an incredible life changing film. And as no less a person than Spike Lee once said, and I think still believes, everybody, well, he didn't say this part, I'm saying this part, everybody wants to believe that films can change history, that films can really have that social impact. And it's, uh, it's a slippery slope how true this is or not. But as Spike always said, the Thin Blue Line is demonstrably a film that changed history for one man, Randall Adams, because it got him out of jail. And, you know, that's a, that's a, an, all the aesthetics are one thing, but, um, here's a case where there was, uh, absolute undeniable, quantifiable direct impact. Yeah. And the most popular TV shows now, you know, the, the murder show on, uh, Netflix and, and serial and, uh, you know, there is kind of the same idea, but 30 years earlier. You bet. So yeah, if you like those things, it's such, he's such a good filmmaker. John, thank you so much. How can people reach you? And uh, they can go to our website, proudlyresents.com, to get your book. But <laughs> I don't really, again, that's a really good question. I've, I've been laying low, so I don't know. Um, I'm not trying to hide out. Come to Austin, Texas. You know, we've, we're a friendly small town. You'll see me if you just hang out for, for a week. You'll probably see me hanging. You know, you'll run into me somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but otherwise, I, I don't really, I, I don't really... I'd say come on out and see the shows at Cine Family. Is, uh, you know next week. That's I'll be there. Yeah, there's amazing, amazing, amazing films there. And so uh, go to our website, prowlersends.com/slash/cinefamily, and uh, we'll go, I'll send you right to their schedule of great films. So John, thank you so much for doing this. You're not on Twitter or any of the uh, the Facebooks or the uh, the other things. Well, again, I have a I have a rationale for this. When you're teaching, uh, which I, I just, as I said, I was for you know pretty long spell. I feel like being doing any of those things when you have students is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but now I don't have that excuse anymore. But at this point, who goes on Facebook and you know for the first time in 2016? So you know, <laughs> we'll set you up a page. If there's a 16 year old out there, can you set him up an Instagram? I know I could, I could do it. I just don't want. <laughs> Cut to you on Snapchat. Yeah. Very excited. Looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much. This is ProudlyResents.com. At ProudlyResents. Reach Adam at Mac.com. And uh, join our Facebook page. John, thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you. It's been a pleasure to talk. Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.